Welcome to Making Connections News. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. This episode is looking to the future and efforts to make it more sustainable for humans and the planet. We begin with an interview from the Rural Everywhere podcast with Diane Wilson, author of The Seed Saver and a member of the Dakota Tribe. Next up, Brian Anderson and Billy Fleming talk with Jeff Young on the Appalach America podcast about efforts to make sure coal communities are not left behind in the transition to cleaner energy. We begin with a conversation between Diane Wilson and Rural Assembly Program Associate Tyler Owen that took place during the Rural Women Everywhere Conference. Wilson, who is based in Minnesota, is a gardener and a writer who recently published The Seed Keeper. The novel follows a Dakota family's struggle to preserve their way of life and their sacrifices to protect what matters most. So from 1862, when we see women protecting their seeds, to now when we see genetically modified seeds, and to say, well, that relationship has undergone really immense transformation. And what are the consequences? And how does that reinforce your worldview of either being in relationship to the world in which we take care of it, or we are in relationship to a seed in which we take advantage of. That was Diane Wilson, this week's guest on Everywhere Radio. My name is Tyler Owens, and I'll be sitting in for Whitney this week. Through this episode, we will be featuring a conversation that Diane and I had at Rural Women Everywhere. Diane is Dakota from the Rosebud Reservation. Through our conversation, we will explore what it means to be a Native author in mainstream media, where she draws her inspiration, and the importance of community in place. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So first, let's get started with how did you get into storytelling? Well, I I really love that you describe writing as storytelling, because that is at the heart of... um, of what we do, whether it's telling it in books or telling it in through the oral tradition. Um, but for me, I think the start came when I was growing up and, you know, heard a story from my mother and my aunts about attending boarding school out on the Pine Ridge and the Rosebud Reservations. And and in my family, no one understood what boarding schools were for. Um, we knew that uh, my, my uh, mother and my aunts went there because their family, it was a way to help just support their, their, um, their family through what was a really brutal depression and and so for me that's where the story started because I didn't understand it I didn't know what boarding schools were for I didn't know why my relatives were there and why my life was so different so you grow up with these questions and then as I uh, became an adult I started um, looking for understanding into into um, starting with boarding schools, starting with my family's history. And that that ended up being a, a memoir called Spirit Car. And then about um, 20 years ago, I also started volunteering, working with indigenous seeds and found a whole new world of stories. So the, I mean, the stories were carrying the history of the land, but, but also the history of the people who grew them. 
So I worked with um, Native organizations for, you know, the past 15 years. One of them was Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. And that's where I really learned um, a lot about seeds, about traditional food systems, about food sovereignty. And then it was all of these stories together that that I tried to bring into writing The Sea Keeper. That's amazing. And you, just as you talked on wanting to discover your family's story and where they came from and, you know, going through those boarding school eras. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from the Gila River Indian community, so I know my grandmother's experiences and her siblings as well. So that leads me to my next question. Why do you feel it's important to have Native American stories and authors such as yourself in mainstream media? Well, just thinking about... Um, uh, where we started, which is that that conversation around boarding schools and growing up not knowing anything about how assimilation works, what boarding schools were for, um, and then not having any of those resources or role models available in the schools that I grew up in. And so I feel like we have a lot of ground to make up in, ter- in terms of telling the stories that have been repressed um, among them, I do feel that the boarding school story is one um, that there's so much work to be done around that history, especially if you've been following what's come out of uh, out of Canada. So stories like that are incredibly important to tell. They um, and it's really important for the healing work that needs to be needs to be part of that history as well. That people understand why we had boarding schools and that in that deep intention of assimilating uh, native people by removing children is it's such a horrific story but when you bring when you tell those stories when you share them you open up that opportunity for um, for healing work so that was that's one of the reasons is is to bring forward these stories that have been repressed for so many generations And then, you know, when I've been doing my own research and seeing that how many of these histories and stories have been told from the perspective of white men, and then how often historians that these storytellers would get with, they would misinterpret the culture, or they would shift it so that they're telling historical events from a, from a perspective that, that is very one-sided. Um, and then, you know, and this can lead to the development of stereotypes. And what one of the things that I think is really critical is the fact that the the um, the stories and voices of women have been silenced for many generations. So when you look back in history, um, it's very hard to understand the role of women and women's stories. And one of the stories that um, has always seemed especially important to me is the role that women have always played in agriculture. Um, And that, you know, when we think about the fact that so many of the foods that we rely on today were developed by native agriculturalists, and that in many traditional societies, women often, often um, led the way in terms of keeping the gardens, um, taking care of if they if the tribes were gardeners the, it was often the women who took care of um, raising the food that way and saving seeds and yet 
that history um, has pretty much been silenced and that we don't acknowledge the role of women, for example, in developing corn, which today, especially living in Minnesota, is one of the most important crops that we're raising and that women played a really critical role in helping to develop that plant, in helping to disseminate and, and um, find food uses for it. And yet, you know, women don't get the credit that they deserve for, for doing this incredible work as agriculturalists. So part of telling stories is giving credit to women for the work they have always done in taking care of families, taking care of community, taking care of seeds, and also doing this, this really brilliant work of helping to develop the, the foods that we rely on today. So that's one of my, my favorite um, stories to bring forward um, is around corn and the role of women in developing it. Of course, and in a lot of communities, tribally specific, um, we do know that it's a lot of a matrilineal society. A lot of women tend to the children, they take care of the food, they manage to pretty much be the, the backbone of the family. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's one difference whenever it comes to Indigenous people's relationships with food. But do you mind touching on what the difference um, when it comes to your book and the story of seed keeping, the difference of relationships between indigenous communities and non-natives. Mm -hmm. So um, the I when I think about that difference in relationships, it's in terms of the um, just to be just to generalize rather broadly the difference in worldviews. So that when I think about, especially for Dakota people. Um, the the worldview could be summed up in the phrase Awasi, which means we are all related and through that phrase it means i'm related to all of you i'm related to the plants the animals the water the soil the air and that as a relative i have a responsibility to take care of all of these beings and to see them as living beings with uh, who are co-creating the world with us. And so from that perspective, it means that if I'm out gathering wild plants, I only take what I need. It means that if I'm growing corn in my garden, I'm going to take care of the soil. I'm going to take care of the seeds. I'm going to I'm going to um, offer prayers uh, when I'm planting, when I'm harvesting. And throughout that entire process of, of being in relationship to the plants and animals who give their the gift of their lives as food, then I understand that at the heart, it's based on a reciprocal relationship so that we give and we receive. And then what I would call another worldview, which is what I which is what settlers brought in which is viewing plants and animals and soil and land as commodities. So that you can, you can um, if, you, if you regard all of these beings as commodities, then they can be sold. So then you bring a very different perspective, which is that bottom line, it's that um, making money from these relationships, it's, it's a profit orientation. But the danger in that relationship is that is that you can rationalize the way you treat animals and plants for and soil, for example, 
uh, based on the amount of money that you can make out of um, the way you treat them. So you end up, you can rationalize, uh, you know, raising your animals in factory conditions. You can rationalize um, not taking care of your soil to the point at which it's completely depleted. You can pollute your water. You can, um, you can genetically modify seeds. And these are ways to me that show a worldview based on a commodity relationship as opposed to a relative relationship. So I'm wondering, Tyler, what would you add to that from your perspective, from your upbringing? Of course, thank you for that question. <laughs> um, for me personally, I, I, it's a big piece of that is the respect component of understanding that we don't necessarily have ownership over anything. And um, whenever we think about the food that we're taking in, we're thinking about all of the work that went into it, the prayers that go into it, as well as um, just being grateful for being able to have what we had, because a lot of our tribal communities definitely faced famine at one point or another um, and are fortunate enough to be here today as resilient as we are. Um, and of course, your book is absolutely beautiful, The Seed Keeper. Um, do you mind sharing with us the importance of seed keeping or what that tradition is? Well, so this has been a big part of my own life journey is understanding the importance of seeds. So um, 20 years ago, when I was really trying to understand my own family history, I heard about um, a collection of very old rare seeds that were being grown out on a tiny little garden just south of the Twin Cities. And I had not heard of indigenous seeds to that point. But um, at this garden, they were growing out seeds like Cherokee Trail of Tears corn. And um, there was traditional tobacco that was uh, 800 years old or more. There was Hopi black turtle beans. And what was so touching to me, so impressive, was the fact that these seeds had been saved by generations, uh, generation after generation in families who often faced uh, terrific hardship and sometimes even starvation and yet they saved those seeds because that that longer term view of thinking always ahead to the next season but also the next generations meant that your responsibility as a seed keeper was immense and and that's the um, that's the story that I've really begun I've, I've really learned by working with these different native organizations, working to um, both protect, grow out, and return these seeds to communities as food. So I've learned from farmers, I've learned from elders, I've learned from um, native youth, I've learned from the seeds themselves, just how important seeds have always been as, a, as part of our culture. And that that practice holds such important teachings for us as human beings. And so it was um, trying to combine all that I was learning into a book that, you know, it took me a long time, but it is really the culmination of all of that experience. That's amazing. And I mean, in the past 
couple of years, I feel like we've definitely seen a lot of young people specifically, but a lot of people throughout Indian country who have been really working hard to go back to their indigenous foods and trying to decolonize um, the foods that they intake, which means growing their own and also learning about the different kinds of nutritional values that a lot of these items had that our ancestors ate. Um, so besides just wanting to bring the tradition of seed keeping to the table, what else inspired you to write this book? I think of myself, I'm a writer and a gardener. And those two just, they're, they they feed each other. So I garden and I write stories about it. And then the stories feed the gardening. Um, and so um, in addition to the stories that those seeds were carrying, I was also involved in um, an event uh, back in 2002 called the Dakota Commemorative March. And that was an event here in Minnesota uh, to honor the 1700 women Dakota women, children, and elders who are being forced marched after the 1862 Dakota War from the Lower Sioux Reservation to a concentration camp at Fort Snelling. And so the women, what I heard, the story I was told is that the women didn't know where they were being sent. They didn't know how they would take care of their families or um, what they would grow in the coming season. So they sowed their seeds in the hems of their skirts and they hid them in their pockets. And so even when families were starving, they protected those seeds so that they would have something to grow in the coming season, but also for future generations. So it was that, the example of their courage, their strength in making sure that they protected those seeds they're the reason why we have this Dakota corn today. So I'm actually growing that corn that I write about in my own garden. I don't have a lot of plants, but it's really important to me to be in relationship with those plants. But it was the, the teachings from that story of, it, it made me realize that today, all these, what is it, 150 plus years later, that we are facing um, the same kinds of, well, not, we're facing very different challenges, but no less serious, which is, you know, when I grow my Dakota corn in my backyard, I'm surrounded by cornfields. And so that corn is at risk of being cross-pollinated always. And so it is on our watch now, our responsibility to take care of those seeds. So part of that, um, part of writing this book for me had was wanting to communicate that message of this is our responsibility that has come forward from what um, that the story of what those Dakota women did. I just wanted to put it in a story so that it wasn't a lecture. It wasn't, a, you know, yet one more dire headline. I wanted to, to be infused with hope. I wanted to, um, through the story, reconnect with what is so beautiful, so hopeful, and so amazing about seeds. Because that's, I think, we've, we've moved away from that. Of course. And, you know, in your book, the main character, Rosalie Ironwing, she's finding home again after being gone for a while. And like you said, a lot of these women who just are people in general who were displaced and moved around the country and had to make do with what they with what they were given. What is the importance of 
connection to place whenever it comes to tribal communities mm-hmm. and specifically for Rosalie. Mm-hmm. Well, I think for Rosalie, like a lot of people, it's coming back to your homeland. So it's the place where your ancestors are buried. It's the place that always feels like home to you. So you know the plants, you know the animals who who grow there, you know the medicines and what they're used for. Um, and I always I like to think about the um, the horizon line that we're we're drawn back to the horizon line that is part of who we are. Um, and that you know one of the one of the terms I love is that idea of blood memory. That when we come home, we feel it in our bones. We we recognize it. We hear it. In um, just in the sound of the wind, and and you know again that horizon line and and the um, the feel of the land. So for Rosalie, she had lost her family, her language, her community, and that even though she was she was in that place um, early in her life, th- that relationship that she develops with seeds and with gardening is what helps. Uh, her on that journey back to her home. Well, thank you so much. We're going to go ahead and jump into some of these questions that we have from the audience for you, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, so first we have, do you have any suggestions of places to find seeds and support the Indigenous seed keeping efforts? Um, This individual is from Kentucky and would love to find Native seeds that are from their area and garden them to help continue their lifeline. Mm. Um, So the one of the, there's actually two seed saving organizations that I know of um, that are generally and publicly available. And one is Seed Savers in Iowa. And I actually put their contact information in the afterward in the book. And then the other one is Native Seed Search down in the Southwest. Um, You know, they're in the work that I did in organizations, because of what assimilation has cost tribes in terms of displacing indigenous foods, there has been a priority in making sure that those seeds get returned first to their home, their home community. But once seeds get established, um, then they can go to organizations like Seed Savers where they're more broadly distributed. And to me, the more we grow out seeds, the more we share them, the healthier it is for the seeds themselves. So those are two organizations who are national. Um, You might also look in in your own state just to see if there are organizations that are also doing this work. I know there are seed libraries popping up a lot. Um, But I should also say, too, that that indigenous seeds are heirloom seeds. And so that any time you are growing out an heirloom seed, you are continuing uh, a line of seeds that have not been genetically modified. And this is doing good seed work. Um, Could you maybe talk a little bit more about how uh, genetically modified seeds tend to align with the commodity-based view that you were talking about earlier versus the indigenous uh, relational view? Um, So genetically modified seeds, to me, it is taking a step in um, taking apart life. Genetically modified seeds, to me, that 
that discussion has really um, become polarized between dueling sets of, of scientific data. And what is missing often from that conversation is about the relational piece of that work. If we regard our seeds as our ancestors, as sacred beings, then is genetically modifying them, especially with DNA from another species, is that being a good relative to these seeds? Is that taking care of them for the long view for my, our grand, grandchildren's grandchildren? Is that what we want to pass on? And, and I think, and I would, I have to say the, the question that I raise in the book is specifically about that relationship, how it's evolved over generations. So from 1862, when we see women protecting their seeds to now when we see genetically modified seeds and to say, well, that relationship has undergone really immense transformation. And what are the consequences? And how does that reinforce your worldview of either being in relationship to the world in which we take care of it, or we are in relationship to a seed in which we take advantage of. When I'm growing heirloom seeds, so seeds, um, so one of them being traditional tobacco, and then the squash and beans and corn. But what I've seen too is a much higher level of pollinator activity, so that so that you see the way that our native bees, in particular will gravitate toward plants that are native to your area. And that, that is really dear to my heart, is planting for, for pollinators that, um, so that if I have something that, you know, it doesn't matter whether, if I don't harvest it, I know somebody else will. Um, but that, it, it's that idea of creating a community where you live. So even in your own yard, you have that, um, you have that possibility of putting in plants that are not only good for your family, but good for the families of everyone around you. So that's one of my favorite lessons has been observing firsthand um, the pollinators return to an area uh, because of the plants that are, are there again. I think this will be our last question before we get into you getting to read a little excerpt. Um, so is it culturally appropriating um, for non-Indigenous people to grow Indigenous seeds? Um, this individual said that they, that, that a tribe nearby them is sensitive to sharing seeds um, and just taking advantage of tribal culture and assets in general. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, getting back to what we, we were talking about a little earlier, the, um, the seeds so under you know understanding really how assimilation has impacted the the food systems in tribal communities and that when tribes were placed on reservations not only did they lose access to their land but they also lost access to their foods and so um, as part of that we've seen the seeds themselves become in very short supply many of them have disappeared but that the so then the first priority in cultural recovery work is to rematriate those seeds to make sure that they go back to their home communities and that they are grown out as food for those communities. And I, I do believe it's a really important priority that, that those seeds um, 
belong first to the families uh, who have lost access to them. Um, but it's also true that if seeds are shared with you, then grow them out and maybe and share them back with their home community. Um, or another possibility is find seeds that are native to your, your culture. So if you are, say, if you're European descent, where did your family come from? And what are those seeds like? Maybe there's something you can find that is closer to your own culture, or this is based on a teaching I heard from um, Terry Lynn Brandt that you, if you find heirloom seeds that you're really interested in growing out, then you grow them in your garden for seven years and they become your seeds. And you have, you can then name them, you can enter into a different kind of relationship with those seeds, but you have to put that time in. So, but they become your family seeds then after seven years. So that would be my suggestion is that support the work of seeds returning home to their communities and then in your own gardens support seeds that can become part of your own tradition. Yeah. Um, I would love if you would go ahead and read us a, your excerpt that you had spoken about um, so we can give the audience a little bit of taste of what your book has in store. This is just from part of Rosalie's journey in learning to become a gardener herself. Seeds breathed and spoke in a language all their own. Each one was a miniature time capsule, capturing years of stories in its tender flesh. How ignorant I felt compared to the brilliance contained in a single seed. I had begun to see that when we save these seeds, when we select which ones will be planted again, our lives become braided into the life stories of these plants. That was a conversation between Diane Wilson and Tyler Owen from the podcast Everywhere Radio. You can also watch a video of this interview at the ruralassembly.org website. Next, Appalachia America host Jeff Young asks what Appalachia without coal might be and talks with two individuals who are leading efforts to support a transition to cleaner energy that also rebuilds the region with a green economy. Those interviews took place in the spring of 2021, not long after the Biden administration took office. I have this distinct memory from childhood, from when I was a kid growing up in West Virginia. I'd be zoning out in front of the TV to Mr. Cartoon or a Gilligan's Island rerun, and there'd be this commercial. It was an ad for the West Virginia Coal Association. It shows miners looking all heroic, and then comes the part that really sticks with me, even to this day, in the big finale. as a kid, I remember thinking, what are they selling? They think I'm going to go down to Copley's Market and buy me a lump of coal? I mean, who buys coal? It wasn't until much later that I realized what the Coal Association was selling. They're selling a story, a very simple story, and it goes like this. That's it. That's the story. Coal is 
West Virginia is, as in, one does not exist without the other. That's a heck of a story when you think about it, and it's part of a larger story that for generations told us that the places in Appalachia that provide our coal, provide our gas, are really just that, places to provide our fuel. Well, now here we are. We have a new president pushing for action on climate change and clean energy. And even before his election, we saw electric utilities rapidly moving away from coal. So we have a big question. If coal defined this place, then what are we without it? We're about to find out. Welcome to Appalachia America. I'm Jeff Young. Today, we'll talk to the head of the Biden administration's working group, tasked with helping coal communities find a new path forward. If it doesn't work, well, I I haven't actually thought about what happens if it doesn't work. The stakes are are so high that that's why I haven't even considered the ramifications. If it doesn't work, then communities will collapse upon themselves. And an exercise in imagining what a Green New Deal might really look like. The various movements, justice that are on the ground that we work with there, have far more radical and imaginative ideas for the future than we do. It's welcome to Appalachia America. The U.S. Department of Energy has 17 research laboratories around the country. A few of them have names you might recognize. Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, because, well, those places gave us the atom bomb, and like it or not, that changed the world. The other labs are not as well-known, but they've also done some world-changing work. For example, the National Energy Technology Laboratory, based in Morgantown, West Virginia, helped develop something called horizontal drilling and fracturing. You probably know it as fracking. And like it or not, that changed the world. The NETL, or NETL, as they like to call it, has quietly been doing big-deal research on fossil fuels for years. A modest but accomplished engineer named Brian Anderson runs that lab, and he's our guest today. And just a few days before we recorded this episode, Mr. Anderson welcomed Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin to the lab for a tour. So first, I would like to introduce uh, Secretary Granholm and, and pass it over uh, to her to have a few welcoming remarks. Thank you so much, Brian. And I, I'm excited, first of all. Granholm is, is pushing President Biden's plan for cleaner energy, uh, and Manchin is a key Senate vote on whether that plan will become policy. Brian Anderson finds himself right smack in the middle of that. Not only does he lead Nettle, a fossil fuels laboratory, the president has picked him to lead an ambitious working group with 11 federal agencies. Their mission is to help coal communities and places that had coal power plants to find a new path forward in a clean energy economy. Easy, right? Well, part of what makes Anderson a very interesting person to lead that very difficult effort is his family's very deep history in West Virginia energy. Yes, my grandfather was an underground miner. My father grew up at Mine Mouth. Carbondale Number 9 was the name of the mine. Uh, My family had been connected in the energy sector my entire life, including uh, in in the burgeoning oil and gas sector of the 1980s and in Appalachia as well. And so my career has been dedicated to energy research, uh, renewable energy, fossil energy, carbon capture, sequestration. Prior to joining the Department of Energy, was a professor for nearly 15 years teaching chemical engineering as well. 
Did you have any inkling as a kid or a young man that this is what you'd end up doing, given your family's history with the energy industry? When I was in third grade, I decided I wanted to be, be an engineer. Wasn't sure at that point what type of engineer, but then I also had a family of educators. My mother was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, and so ended up combining the two in my professor job. And then really got the bug as I was looking at uh, the future of Appalachia, the future of the energy sector, to be able to you know, have a bigger impact on the future of energy, developing technologies for saving the planet while providing affordable, reliable, and resilient energy for our economy and trying to strike that balance. And that's where we are today with the Interagency Working Group. Yeah. And no big task, no big deal, just save the planet and reinvent an entire uh, region's <laughs> economy. I mean, this is big stuff we're talking about. Are you a little, I don't know, daunted by the challenge that you have here? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is not an easy challenge to tackle. The resources that the coal communities were blessed with has provided the backbone of an economy for a century. And so it is a big shift in the economy but as director of NETL, when we look back in the technology development that we've had, uh, it was the lab that stepped up with industrial partners to develop and innovate uh, new technologies. So I view this as you know, really two components of just yet another technical challenge. That includes the development of innovative policy, the development of innovative economics and financing uh, mechanisms for communities, as well as the development of new technologies. Let's talk a bit about NETL, the National Energy Technology Lab, and its historic role has been with fossil fuels. Here we are, uh, you're now part of an administration that has set a goal of moving us away from fossil fuels. How does the lab's mission fit with that? The lab's mission fits perfectly. For 25 years, we've been developing carbon capture technologies at NATL, also advanced conversion technologies, including higher efficiency combustion, high-efficiency turbines that we have on the market, both natural gas turbines and steam turbines. We've been working hand-in-hand -hand with industry for decades in increasing the efficiency, lowering the environmental footprint of fossil fuel use. And so, in fact, uh, the, the mission of the laboratory fits very well in driving down the costs and uh, scaling up and commercializing technologies in lowering the environmental footprint of all of our energy technologies. Mm -hmm. And so as we look at the goals of the Biden administration, decarbonizing the grid by 2035, decarbonizing the economy by 2050, and you look across the portfolio of technologies that will get us there, carbon capture and sequestration is going to play a big role. Moving into advanced combustion of, of natural gas with CCUS will play a big role. And then beyond the 2035 mark, moving into the harder to decarbonize segments of the economy and industry, Hydrogen is going to play a big role as well, and we've developed at NETL in-house and with project partners historically great innovative low-cost, low-carbon or zero-carbon ways of producing hydrogen. And so it really fits very well within our portfolio. I like to think we're really the carbon management lab. Yes, we're the fossil energy laboratory, but we've, we've been managing carbon across its entire value chain for 111 years. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk a bit more about carbon capture and storage, sometimes just shorthanded as clean coal in uh, the vernacular, I guess. You know, I've been covering this a while. I'm no expert, but I've been around this issue area long enough to remember things like FutureGen, 
which was a very high-profile project to scale up carbon capture and storage, it doesn't seem to me that we have a whole lot to show for it. Why do we think that carbon capture and storage will work now when, despite a lot of past efforts, it hasn't worked, at least not at the scale that would be required and cost that would be required? Well, Jeff, you're hitting the nail on the head with the scale part of the comments. In particular, to this point, we don't have a comprehensive carbon energy policy in in the United States. There are components of it, everything from investment and production tax credits on renewables to 45Q, which is the uh, tax credit for capture and sequestration of, of CO2. But those components were not in place for FutureGen. And so FutureGen as well as some of the Department of Energy's other uh, CCUS demonstration projects, didn't have the comprehensive energy policy and the policy for decarbonization that I think there's some momentum that we see today. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying the carbon capture and storage challenge is not so much a technological one as it is a policy one. If we have the correct policy and economics, that the technological tools are there, yeah? Well, I would start with the economics. It's the economics of driving down the cost of carbon capture, which we've done. We still have a little ways to go. We have driven the cost of carbon capture from upwards of $90 per ton of capture. Today, we're sitting at around you know, $42 to $45 per ton of CO2 capture. So we've cut the cost in half. We're driving toward $30 per ton. But those are all costs. So what are the financial incentives of reducing the carbon footprint? The financial incentives either come from a market incentive, either through, you know, if folks are willing to buy green certifications or carbon-free certifications, or a policy framework that would incentivize decarbonization. And do you think that if it is developed at scale, that it could be applied successfully to coal power generation, or is it more likely that carbon capture and storage and its chief benefit will be other applications, such as heavy manufacturing and other things that are hard to decarbonize. It is still yet to be seen. Uh, Again, it comes down to the cost. Certainly, our coal-fired electricity-generating fleet is aging. Many coal plants are, are slated for retirement. So if you then add on a cost or an incentive of carbon reduction for 3CCUS, it becomes a financial decision. The low cost of natural gas over the last decade has been largely responsible for displacing most of the coal assets on the grid. And so if you track decarbonization through CCUS, either on the natural gas or coal, it is likely to be deployed more on natural gas. So even with carbon capture and storage at scale, the future for coal still doesn't look that good. Right. If you follow the trends uh, over the last few decades and, and you look at the existing planned retirements on the books, many companies are accelerating their planned retirements. And that is the market forces that are at play already. Well, this brings us to the other job that you've been given. As if the one you have there at Nettle isn't enough, you've also been tasked with leading this interagency task force that has the job of uh, making sure that coal communities and power plant communities aren't left behind in a transition. What's success going to look like coming out of that task force? It's a big job you've got there. It certainly is, Jeff. Yes, I was asked to do this, but I also was asking myself to do this. You know, I have watched the economies of coal and power plant communities over the last 10 years, uh, in many cases, suffering from a lack of economic diversity. And so success, in the end, looks like diverse economies for these 
coal and power plant and impacted communities. And certainly your listeners across Kentucky and, and West Virginia and Ohio and all of Appalachia, as well as many coal communities in the western part of the United States as well, have already been seeing large-scale economic dislocation and a, a lack of economic diversity. Coupled in that becomes the how. How do we do that? And much of it will rely on trying to revitalize the manufacturing sector and, and modifying the new supply chains for, one, the, the new energy build-out that we're likely to see through the energy transition and how those supply chains can run through coal and power plant communities, leveraging the skill sets of the communities for manufacturing. And so that leads to the guiding principles of the interagency working group are to work across the entire government, putting comprehensive proposals together to work directly with communities. Another guiding principle is that we learn from communities of where they are, what assets they have, and where they want to go. And the guiding principle is that we understand the types of jobs that exist in power plants, that exist in, in coal mines, and the types of jobs that replace them need to also be family-sustaining, benefits-providing careers, not just near-term job replacement, and understanding that it isn't going to be achieved through just worker retraining because the jobs have to be there. And then the last guiding principle is that we on the federal government side Communities don't want the handout, and that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is provide the directed, catalytic investment to where we're providing the type of support to communities that include the infrastructure that they need and a policy framework where we're standing up a policy subcommittee across the 11 agencies so we can understand the types of policies and policy levers that we have to pull, to put investments and prioritize investments into uh, the economically displaced communities. What do you think are the stakes if this works, if it doesn't work? I mean, what do we risk here if this effort that you're undertaking doesn't pan out? I haven't actually thought about what happens if it doesn't work because I, I am so focused on making it work. I think the stakes are so high that that's why I haven't even considered the ramifications of what what happens if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, though, then communities will collapse upon themselves. I mean, frankly, we've already seen it happen across coal communities. There are communities that are shells of their former selves. There are communities that we have in coal country where there aren't enough people to provide the water flow and sewage systems. Sewer systems and water systems can't maintain their operational status because there's been such a population outflux. You know, West Virginia is one perfect example. The population decline in West Virginia led the country in the last census, and it becomes a downward spiral for these communities that have provided the coal, that have provided the power, that has powered the nation for the last 50 years. And so it's a disservice to families. It's about the impact to generations of families. Folks feel trapped, and there's no hope. They can't sell their house. They're locked into a house that they've lived in, but they can't sell it because there's no jobs. Nobody wants to move in. And there's really a lack of hope. And it's not completely disconnected from many of the other epidemics that we see in the, in the country, including opioids. The opioid epidemic that we see is not unrelated to the challenge we have. So that's what's at stake for these communities in Appalachia. But what about the rest of the country? This might seem callous, but some of the feedback we get sometimes from a national audience is along the lines of, well, 
those are the brakes. Did we prop up the buggy whip makers? You know, what's at stake for the rest of the country? That's a great question. In my opinion, what's at stake for the rest of the country is being more efficient in our energy transition. Because the individuals that work in the mines, that work in, in the existing energy sector in the power generation fleet, getting them involved in the energy transition directly, be it through carbon capture and sequestration, the build out of hydrogen and hydrogen infrastructure and hydrogen hubs, be it in the manufacturing of solar panels or wind turbines during the energy transition, will benefit the entire country because this is a skilled workforce that we want to bring off the sidelines, that we want actively involved. And so when we look at the cost of the energy transition as a whole, having the skilled labor that we have in these communities today and bringing them to bear on the energy transition and getting them involved will benefit the entire country from an economic standpoint, everything from GDP to, to reshoring to strengthening our entire economy in the U.S. is also at stake. Brian Anderson, thank you so much for your time. Jeff, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I've really enjoyed it. Brian Anderson directs the National Energy Technology Laboratory, and he leads the Biden administration's Interagency Working Group on Coal and Power Plant Communities and Economic Revitalization. I keep telling them they need a shorter name, something snappy like Appalachimeric. You've probably heard of the Green New Deal, right? It's an idea proposed by New York Progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In a nutshell, the Green New Deal builds on FDR's original New Deal concept of large-scale government investment and applies that to the climate crisis and issues of economic and social justice. But what does that really mean? What would it look like? University of Pennsylvania design professor Billy Fleming has undertaken a three-year exercise with his students at Penn's Weitzman School of Design to try to create that sort of vision. Fleming challenged his students to imagine what a Green New Deal might look like in different rural parts of the country. They settled on three regions, Appalachia obviously being one, uh, the second being the lower Mississippi Delta, which is where I, I grew up, and then the third being the Corn Belt of the Midwest and ask them, you know, as a result in that first studio, not to focus on developing concrete solutions per se, because we weren't positioned to really speak to that for folks in Appalachia, um, but to sort of develop a, an exhibition of ideas about what a world rebuilt by the Green New Deal might look like, might be possible. Places like West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, kind of on down the line. Fleming's students worked with grassroots groups in each region, and within those places, he had them focus on three major industries they viewed as connected to environmental and social justice problems. Now, the first two I expected to hear, fossil fuels and farming, both of which obviously have a big environmental impact. The third, however, was a less obvious choice, prisons. One of the most common uses for abandoned mine lands in Appalachia is conversion to uh, detention facilities of some kind. Lots of reasons for that. The AML program and some state grant programs uh, have funds set aside specifically to build prisons atop abandoned mine lands. The abandoned mine lands themselves are, they're strip mines, so they're flat and easy to build on. So you build just about anything. We've just chosen to subsidize building prisons. They're polluted or brownfield sites in most cases. You actually don't have to remediate them to the same level you would for almost any other use if you're putting incarcerated people on top of them. So that was, you know, one of the things that came out of their analysis work, one of their sort of proposed futures there in thinking through a world in which, say, prison as we know it didn't exist, 
was thinking through the afterlife of all those facilities. So what might it look like if, say, in eastern Kentucky, where prisons have been built on top of old coal mine sites or the western part of Virginia, what might it look like if those prisons were put to other use? Sure. Well, it would look like many different things. Almost every prison facility in Appalachia has to have the ability to island itself off from the grid. So if there were a power outage, they have to be able to kind of keep the lights on, keep operations running, independent of the larger grid everyone else relies on. And what that means in terms of converting them to a rural electric co-op is that even the smallest prison facility in Appalachia can power a town of about 2,000 or so people right now. We just basically changed the direction of the current. And so they put together this kind of technical document, kind of walking you through how that process might work, pointing to a couple of sites that might make the most sense to kind of begin with in that longer process. Um, And it's one of the things that's been, I think, in the afterlife of the studio, the most exciting, certainly to policymakers and some of the movement groups we work with there. This is a real material alternative to the prison building industry is a a source of, of hopefully decarbonized electricity that communities in Appalachia can actually own and operate themselves. It sounds like people really ran with the open-ended nature of possibilities that you were presenting here. And I find that interesting because part of what I think we run up against is a limit on imagination that we're kind of placing on ourselves because coal has been so dominant here for so long. I think a lot of people, a lot of community leaders have trouble seeing beyond that. Did you find that was a barrier? Absolutely. Every single one of our students in that studio at various points and to varying degrees really struggle to you know, break out of that idea that the future is going to very closely resemble the present in terms of, say, the political economy of Appalachia. Um, and there are lots of good reasons for that. Yeah, the coal industry and the fossil fuel industry have incredible political and economic power there. And ultimately, the way that we framed it up in the studio was this idea that the various movements that are on the ground that we worked with there have far more radical and imaginative ideas for the future than we do, but they're often not spatial. They're often not aesthetic or don't have form or any kind of visual culture to them. And so one of the things we can do is lend that to their their demands. And in doing so, actually make them feel far less radical and much more pragmatic. Uh, It's one thing, I think, to talk about the abolition of prisons, which is a thing we took very seriously and supported in the studio. But it's another thing to think about what a community might look like with a prison facility that maybe is like a very perverse center of employment being converted to a more dignified and more um, a less destructive center of employment for people and doing that in ways that are connected to all kinds of different policy frameworks that are always going to be important to whatever the future of Appalachia is. Billy Fleming is the Wilkes Family Director of the Ian L. McHarg Center in the Weitzman School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania. I keep telling people they need shorter titles, like Appalachia America, but I digress. Now, the Green New Deal has not gained a lot of traction on Capitol Hill, but it continues to inspire and motivate lots of people around the country. So Fleming is planning a new round of exercises with his students to help people get their visions of a greener future a little closer to reality. While putting this episode together, I was thinking about the power of stories, even short little stories, like that one the Coal Association was telling us with its commercial. After all, the stories we adopt as part of our identity will in turn dictate the norms of our behavior. And in Appalachia, 
that behavior often has to do with how we live on our land. Questions like whether we will have mountains or blow them up, for example. Whether we will have streams and rivers or bury or poison those waterways. Whether we will have a livable atmosphere or one that warms out of control. All of these questions have to do with the stories we adopt and internalize and live out. Over time, that simple little story in the Coal Association's advertisement, the story that told us coal is West Virginia, it became a kind of truth, a matter of settled fact, conventional wisdom that you absolutely needed coal regardless of the price, because without it, what are you? So yes, we blew up the mountains. Yes, we buried the streams. Yes, we denied the science of climate change. And now, without coal, we are going to need new stories to shape our world. That was a June 2021 Appalachia America podcast from Louisville Public Media. Just this July, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin torpedoed proposed climate change legislation that would have led to a cleaner, greener economy in Appalachia and beyond. It's not known what is next other than rising temperatures and an increase in climate-related crisis around the world. Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website, makingconnectionsnews.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, from WMMT Mountain Community Radio.